This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. It's my pleasure to welcome Reverend Michael Dowd to the show. He is author of the New York Times bestseller, Thank God for Evolution, How the Marriage of Science and Religion Will Transform Your Life and Our World. He's also author of a uh, handbook from the past called Earth Spirit, a handbook for nurturing ecological Christianity. It's great to have him here to join us today. Michael, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Jason. I'm doing really well. Good. I always like to give our listeners a sense of geography, and with you, that's going to be an interesting question, because <laughs> you, you have been traveling for 12 years, is it? Exactly. Yes. Uh, for 12 years, my wife, Connie Barlow, she's a science writer and a uh, science educator, and uh, the two of us have lived on the road, traveling all over North America. We've spoken to about 2,000 groups. And I'm speaking to you from Florida, Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland, Florida today. Okay, I always like to, to tell our listeners where you're located. Nobody ever knows nowadays, so <laughs> that's good. Talk to us about the book. You know, I, I love the title, by the way. I think there's been a pretty big uh, lack. Some have alluded to it over the years, of course, but, you know, there's just not a lot of mixing of science and religion, and I think they do blend pretty well. What's your thesis on that? The bottom line is that I think most Christians have not given God glory, to use that kind of religious language, for the discoveries of science. We think of it as just secular. We don't think of it as divine revelation. And yet every fact that we discover, every fact that any scientist in the world discovers, is a revelation of God. It's God revealing truth. So I think of facts as God's native tongue. And so I used to be, an, and I was raised Roman Catholic. I had a born-again experience in my uh, late teenage years because I struggled a lot with drug and alcohol issues, was discipled in an Assemblies of God context. And it, it was really there at an Assembly of God college, Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri, that I first encountered evolution in a God-honoring way. I actually went to that school thinking that evolution was of the devil and all the evils of the world could be attributed to Darwin. And so I was unprepared for them teaching evolution at, a, at an evangelical Pentecostal college. Well, I went on to discover that almost all evangelical colleges, they teach evolution, they just do it in a God-honoring way. So I ended up accepting evolution then, but it really wasn't until 1988 when I met Father Thomas Berry. He died a few years ago at the age of 94, and he became my main mentor. And basically where science, inspiration, and theology, and sustainability intersect is what my passion is uh, and has been. And, and my book, Thank God for Evolution, I think one of the reasons why my book was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winning scientists, as well as by dozens of religious leaders of all different kinds, is that it gives voice not just to my ideas, but it gives voice to God's evidential revelation. That is what God's been revealing through science for several hundred years, and it's time to give God glory for that. And it's profound because what it does is it, it builds a bridge between head and heart. It builds a bridge between evidence and inspiration. Yeah, good stuff. You know, Michael, I don't really understand, and I've always struggled with this question, of understanding why these two would be mutually exclusive. I mean... It seems pretty obvious that evolution is real, 
And it seems pretty obvious that creation is real. Why do they have to be mutually exclusive? Look, something had to create the universe. You know, uh, when you look at the Higgs, uh, the, the whole thing about the God particle, right? And, you know, I remember watching that documentary a few months ago about Higgs boson. That had to be created. I mean, I don't get it. We, yeah. we know that evolution occurs, <laughs> that we know that Darwinism does occur. I mean, nobody can deny that. It, that happens. Things evolve. Organisms evolve. But they had to come from somewhere. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you framed it that way, Jason, because it's challenging at times because so many of us were taught. I mean, the people that we trusted most deeply, our pastors and our parents, have taught us this binary. You know, it's either theology and uh, religion and spirituality and God and Jesus and the Bible on the one hand, or it's like this atheist, secular, humanist, evidence, evolution, all that kind of stuff over on that end. And one of the great challenges that many evangelical and just not even evangelical, conservative Catholic students face when they go to college or, or university and even when they go to seminary is the discovery that, wait a second, there is so much evidence and support of so many of these things that their pastors or their parents taught them to be fearful of. And so that's why I see it as my mission to show the God-honoring, Christ-diffuse religious language, a God-honoring, Christ-edifying, Scripture-honoring way of thinking about everything that science has been revealing. So not only do we see it as not polar opposites, but we see them enriching each other. In fact, on the side of my van, we've got a big Dodge Sprinter white van. And on the side of it, very prominently on both sides, it has the Jesus and the Darwin fish kissing with hearts between them. Definitely get some interesting looks in conservative parts of the world. Bet you do. I bet you do. Now, another probably odd thing that I, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't think it's odd, but it seems like the whole debate over global warming and climate change You've got the conservatives on one side and the liberals on the other. Is it kind of odd that you're a believer in the climate change issue? Well, it's not a matter of even believing. I know what God's been revealing now for a long time through evidence that climate change has changed radically over millions of years. And we humans, because of our activities, industrial activities over the last 200 years especially, we've added so much carbon that we now know through God's evidential word that the last time that there were 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We had alligators and crocodiles up in the Arctic. And we don't believe this. We know this. There's no climate scientist in the world who debated. And so, yeah, I'm very much in favor of having a God-honoring way of thinking about everything, including climate change. And we are now in the place where what we do... I mean, one of my heroes is a Republican, Bob Inglis from South Carolina. And he says it more succinctly because you've got to realize that one of the reasons why so many conservatives reject climate change is because it's often framed in liberal terms, and it's just really unfortunate. That's why I love Bob Inglis. From 2001 to 2012, the largest and most prestigious science body in the world, the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, came out eight months ago with a very uncharacteristically prophetic, and I use that word prophetic exactly, campaign called What We Know. And one of the things they focused on, and if you just put What We Know campaign in Google, you'll get there. They've got these great videos, these short little videos. One of the things they talked about was that between 2001 and 2012, 97% of the papers that were published, 97% of the scientists agree that climate change is real, humans are the main cause, and we must take immediate action to avoid condemning our children and grandchildren to hell and high water. Now, that was up to 2012. From 2012 to the end of 2013, it's now 99.9%. 
And yet, because the issue is often framed in terms of like bigger government regulations, many conservatives understandably, and I think rightly, reject that. That's why Bob Inglis is my hero. He's, here's a direct quote. Again, this is a Republican from South Carolina, evangelical conservative. He says, I favor a conservative approach that marshals the power of the market and doesn't increase the size of government. Here it is in a nutshell. Put all the costs in all the fuels and eliminate all the subsidies and then watch the free enterprise system solve the climate and energy problem. Well, I Damn, would agree with that. That's exactly what everybody says we need to do. And she's saying it in a way that conservatives can get it. Another one of my heroes is Catherine Hayhoe. She's an evangelical woman, climate scientist from Texas. Her husband is a megachurch pastor. And she goes into a, she's one of the most articulate people in the world on climate. In fact, she was featured in the, uh, the Showtime series called uh, The Years of Living Dangerously. And she can go into a room of 400 evangelical conservative Republicans in Texas and win them over. It has to be framed in language that conservatives can embrace. Well, language and regulation or incentive. <laughs> to... Well, yeah, exactly. But if you put all the costs and all the fuels and eliminate all the subsidies, you don't need the regulations. The market itself will take care of much. The market does a pretty good job at things. It does a better job than government. It's far from perfect, but it's about the best thing out there. There are so many layers to this issue. It is like an onion that you could peel for hours. And I just want you to know when I ask these questions, I'm not taking a position. I just want to know what your thoughts are on it, okay? Sure. And so, and the reason I have to say that is because I was interviewing a, a liberal, very staunch climate change advocate, not that she was an advocate for it, but from the New Yorker. She's a reporter for the New Yorker. And she hung up on me during the interview. <laughs> and, and well, I promise I, I won't do that no matter where you are. All I was doing was asking questions. I mean, sure. I, I just wanted to draw her out and get her, but she was like so staunch about the whole thing. She said, climate change, global warming is happening. If you don't believe it, you're an idiot. It's my way or the highway. And I mean, you're not going to win anybody over with that. You know, you just... No, exactly. The first layer, you talked about the activities, the industrial activities. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that the climate change people think the problem is exhaling, it's breathing. It's the CO2. It's not carbon monoxide. It's not even pollution. They just talk about breathing. It's the fact that we exhale and there aren't enough trees to process that. And so now we've got more carbon dioxide then yeah, it's not, right? yeah that, that's not quite it, Jason. It's not a matter of, you know, we've got 7 billion human beings now breathing. There's tens of billions of other animals that are breathing, too. The, the issue is that since we started taking non-renewable resources, namely first coal and then oil and natural gas, these are now putting what was stored carbon in, that was in the ground, now putting carbon dioxide and methane especially the methane may be actually as big a problem as the carbon dioxide because it's now being released up in the Arctic in massive amounts. But the last time we saw this level of methane release was one of the, you know, the end of Permian extinction. So we, we've got some serious issues, but it's not a matter of people breathing. It's a matter of taking carbon that was locked in the ground and putting it into the atmosphere at a faster pace. I mean, this isn't happening over thousands or tens of thousands of years. This is happening in a matter of, you know, one or two hundred years and now decades. I mean, just if you look at just since 1950. So it's the speed of it that's the issue. It's not 
climate change, of course, has happened in the past. I mean, in the last two million years, this is, again, God's revelation, God's evidential revelation. In the last two and a half million years, 17 times the glaciers came out, and the, you know, south, and the glaciers went back. That's a lot of climate change. Glaciers coming and going 17 times in two and a half million years. But it's happening now so fast, and we've got so much of civilization. I mean, every time the glaciers are big, the oceans are down, and when the glaciers melt, the oceans come up. This is just basic physics. I mean, you know, water freezes at 32 degrees whether you're a Republican or Democrat. The problem is we're now living, you know, almost half the world's population is living close to the oceans. And so if oceans rise, which they will, I mean, this is one of the things. Just yesterday, or actually a few days ago, we had the world's, one of the world's experts, the former head of the Jacques Cousteau Society, here at this house, and we, we ended up spending a day just talking. His name's John Englander, and he wrote a book called uh, High Tide on Main Street. And one of the things he talked about is that even if we, like if a virus wiped out all of humanity tonight, the seas would rise for the next thousand years regardless. There's that much already locked into the system. So it's a matter of compassion and wisdom. I mean, this is one of the things I so appreciate about your work. You're really focusing not just on the spiritual, but the practical, and you're bringing Solomonic wisdom to the equation. I think that's what we need. We need wisdom that helps us see the speed and so we really do like step into being Christians, saviors of the future, little Christs. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, good. The next question I would ask you about climate change is, are we talking about climate change or warming? It's really climate chaos, because some parts of the world, in the jet stream, for example, it normally goes around like a tire, and then it's gotten loopier, because when we've lost the, 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 the ice, is becoming thinner and thinner and smaller up in the Arctic, and it's creating this loopiness, this sort of waviness that allows cold air, like, for example, the United States, the eastern part of the United States, had a colder year last year than um, the last 40 years. And yet, Alaska had the hottest in 150 years. So you've got this loopiness that brings hot air way north and cold air way south. So it's really global weirding global chaos. It's, it's not, yes, there is this warming every decade for the last 50 years, or actually longer than that, has been warmer than the previous decade. That's fact. That's easy to verify. But it doesn't impact every part of the world the same way. Some places have more drought. Some places have more intense weather of all different kinds. So say, for example, someone is in an area where it's warming, okay? question I think we need to ask ourselves, and this may sound crazy, but is that even bad? I mean, maybe it would make more farmland arable, you know, th that it could produce food. I, I mean, I don't know if it's bad even. What's bad about it is, again, and this isn't just my worldview, there's nothing that we discover about reality that isn't God-revealing truth. I use the word God and reality interchangeably, and God is being, is revealing a lot through evidence. And we now have lots of really good evidence about how climate has changed over millions of years, and especially the last 600,000 years. And the fact of the matter is, we now have evidence about what happens when climate shifts up and down. And most parts of the world that are now growing food, most of the where the fertile soil is, will be drought conditions. And some of the places that will have good rainfall have almost non-existent soils. So it's not a matter of, yes, wouldn't that be great from the middle of Canada? You know, we can just start growing food there instead of, the, you know, the breadbasket of the United States. The problem is the middle of Canada doesn't have squat when it comes to soil because of the glaciers. Yeah, okay. All right. What else do you want people to know about climate change? I mean, how can we fix it? The biggest thing is, as Bob Inglis, again, a Republican conservative from South Carolina, says the biggest thing is we can no longer allow the free or subsidized polluting of the commons. The fact that we allow corporations or individuals to get wealthy 
by polluting the air, water, soil, and life upon which we all depend is literally collective insanity. That can no longer be allowed. So that's the biggest systemic shift. I want to say something about that for the listeners. Those are called externalities. And so what you have is you have businesses that in the olden days, people would think, okay, here's a corporation and it produces widgets and it uh, charges X amount for the widgets uh, and then it sells them to people and it keeps X amount as a profit and, you know, everything's well and good, assuming they're not scamming everybody on Wall Street, which they probably are. Uh, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> you know, uh, Wall Street, the modern version of organized crime, uh, as I yes. will say. So you've got that. But then there's this external cost, which people are just starting to account for. You know, what does that company take out of the commons? Does it pollute? Does it pollute rivers? And there are all sorts of laws to stop them from doing that. It's funny because I have a friend who owns uh, a bunch of uh, bars and restaurants. And he uh-huh. considers himself to be this total environmentalist. And I think he's out of his uh-huh. mind because I just look at the <laughs> amount of trash those institutions <laughs> produce. And, I mean, it is mind-boggling, the amount of trash yes, they produce, yes. you know. But uh, there are externalities, right? Yes. Well, Jason, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the whole issue of externalities because people often don't think in terms of, of cycles. You know, you go to the supermarket, you buy food, you don't think about where did that food come from? Where does the waste, the packaging and things like that, that you put, where does this all go? And yes, by internalizing true costs, what happens is we create a system where the cheaper, easier, more convenient thing to do becomes the right thing to do. Right now, by externalizing those costs, we have a system where the cheaper, easier, more convenient thing to do is usually the wrong thing to do. And people are going to do, you know, they're not going to think deeply about things often. That's why we have to we have to shift the systems. We currently have systems, and I'm going to use a religious word that some of your listeners may think, what's this guy talking about? I'm going to use the word demonic. For any system, like a governmental or economic or political system, that makes it easy or inevitable for millions of people to do things that are harmful to the future, if that doesn't count as demonic, nothing does. And yet that's what we've got, is a system that makes it almost inevitable for millions of us to do things that future generations will look back and condemn us for. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Externalities. I mean, the laws don't solve the problem? Well, unfortunately, no, because the laws are operating within a system itself that sees as a good a very narrow understanding of progress. I mean, we've defined progress in ways that are totally inaccurate, because if you've got a declining earth, if the air, water, soil, and life upon which everything depends is actually degrading, it doesn't matter whether you've got a gross national product or gross domestic product that's increasing. It's suicidal. It's insane. God condemns that. Reality condemns that. Okay, good. Good stuff. That's a good conversation on that. Of course, we could go on for days about this topic. It's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a very complex and many-layered topic. If we can circle back just before we wrap up here sure. uh, to thank God for evolution, and I'm looking at your table of contents You've got some uh, interesting entries in here talking about how evolution is not meaningless. It's not a blind chance. I think that that's what a lot of people think of it. It's just, you know, it, it doesn't have any meaning to it. Exactly. I mean, one like of the things that I often... Yeah, I used to be an anti-evolutionary fundamentalist. I actively opposed people who taught evolution. In fact, 35 years ago, the Michael Dowd of 35 years ago would have been standing outside the venues that I now speak, handing out tracts, telling you what a heretic that guy in there is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I know that worldview really well to be threatened and, and fearful of, of that. And yet, 
what I've now come to see is that, first of all, if you ask the average American, especially those in sort of middle of America, moderate to conservatives, what they think of evolution, most of them will say they think of evolution as meaningless, blind, chance, godless, purposeless. Well, so it's not a surprise that that's the way they think about evolution. It's not a surprise that they're not climbing over each other to celebrate, you know, evolution. So I think the onus of responsibility is on those of us who do accept evolution, the facts of evolution, and do so in a God-honoring, Christ-edifying way. It's our responsibility to get better at telling this story so that conservatives can see that, oh, like, for example, what I did at my first TEDx talk two years ago was on evolutionary psychology and brain science, meaning what God has been revealing about our inner nature, why we struggle with temptation, why we and our kids and our grandkids get addicted and all this kind of thing. You know, any young man, for example, who thinks the reason he's being tempted by Internet porn is because his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother ate an apple is going to be clueless about how to live in integrity. So when you understand what God's been revealing through science about our nature, it becomes much easier. In fact, I had three evangelicals, because this TEDx talk was done in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a pretty conservative part of the world. I had three evangelicals come up to me independently within about a a two-and-a-half-hour period after my program. And all three of them said basically the same thing, which was, I was a young earth creationist until I heard your program. Now I've got to accept evolution. I've just got to do it in a God-honoring way. In fact, the one young man, he was probably in his mid-20s, he said, I always thought that evolution was about Darwin DNA and dinosaurs. I didn't know it was about how to live a more Christ-like life and have healthier relationships. This is the practical side of an evolutionary worldview. Yeah, yeah, good, good stuff. And that's what I love about your work, bringing together this timeless wisdom, this practical wisdom in a modern age. So blessings on your ministry. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's, uh, I just thought, you know, there's so much wisdom really financial wisdom and business wisdom in the Bible, uh, especially, I love Ecclesiastes and Proverbs too, but Ecclesiastes is far and away <laughs> just my favorite. Got to bring this stuff to people because few people look at it that way and, and see that there's actually a, a profit. There's some profit tips here. So, well, profit, so, yeah, but well, profit spelled both ways. We, exactly. Either way you want to spell profit, exactly. Right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because when you realize that evidence is modern-day scripture, that God's also revealing through evidence, then God's been revealing some pretty amazing things there, too. And the one resource that I would recommend to your, to your listeners, that I certainly recommend to you, I think it's one of the best books on economics that I've ever read, and it's about really sort of taking this wisdom. It's called The Wealth of Nature playing on. Yeah, know, Adam Smith, right. The Wealth, of, the nature. wealth of Nature. Okay. The Wealth of Nature, Economics as if Survival Mattered. Mm-hmm. And it's written by John Michael Greer, G-R-E-E-R. Okay, looking it up now. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll check that out. Maybe we'll get him on the show too. Michael, give out your website and tell people where they can find out more about you. Of course, the book's on Amazon with great reviews. Yeah, the main thing now is I just spent the last year Speaking along the route of the Great March for Climate Action, where there were 50 marchers that went from L.A. to D.C., and so I was preaching and teaching along that route. But I also was interviewing some of the world's top experts in climate change, peak oil, sustainability, and, and how to hold all this scary stuff in ways that inspire us to be in action. And so all of that goes live. It's all free. If people just put, the future is calling us to greatness. Uh, in Google, you'll get there. I think it's the top thing. The future is calling us to greatness. Uh, well, they might want to put my name, Michael Dow, but just that. And you'll see there's 55, and I mean, literally the top of the most respected people uh, on these issues. And um, I literally about, I would say, eight to ten of these interviews were so inspiring. At some point, I was brought to tears. It's just amazing. So I, I highly recommend these, these interviews that are free up online. The future is calling us to greatness. 
sort of our home website that my wife actually is the webmaster for. It's not as fancy and doesn't have all the smells and bells, but it's certainly got more of the content than any of the others, is thegreatstory.org, www.thegreatstory.org. And from that website, you can link to, I mean, everything that we've created, it's all there. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, Reverend Michael Dowd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jason. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.